Welcome to Neuromovement Revolution with Anat Benyel, where you will discover breakthrough possibilities for your life through the brain's power to change. We're so happy that you can join us in making the impossible possible. Hello, good morning, everyone. Wonderful to see you. And Mike, I am beyond thrilled to have you with us for an hour this morning. Okay, it'll be fun in that. Yeah, it will. I do get emotional and a little teary when I get inspired. So you will forgive me, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, I mean it seriously. Anyway, um, so I'm going to, I believe most of, the, of most people know very well who you are, but I'm still going to make sure to, to give a short uh, bio of you, okay? And if I miss anything you would like people to know, please add that afterwards. <laughs> so, Dr. Michael Merzenich is a sorry is a professor emeritus UCSF, a founder and CSO of Scientific Learning, Positive Science, Science and Stronger Brains. Um, as the director of the uh, John C. and Edward Coleman Laboratory at UCSF. Uh, Mike led a large research team that focused on documenting the functional organization and the lifelong plasticity of the central auditory and somatosensory nervous systems. Their basic research study contributed. <coughs> sorry, I have a little something. St studies con uh, contributed to the modern understanding of the principles governing sensory nervous system organization function and plasticity. I'd like to translate it in my own words. So what I was saying, because this is very detailed and geared more to people who are already a little familiar in the scientific world. And I was saying that you're basically considered by many the father of modern neuroplasticity science. And it was your research is a research study, study that surprised you to discover that adult brains of monkeys change in response to their experience. Is that correct? Well, I think that what we contributed, Annette, was an understanding that plasticity is continuous across the life. I mean, people had studied plasticity earlier, but they primarily documented it as something that occurs and applies to a brain in the period of development. And it was largely over with in the brain by the time a child was a year or two or three years of age. And yes. we demonstrated that, in fact, the brain learns how to regulate plasticity, you could say in a sense, in, in, at a young life, but it continues on a massive scale throughout life. And we showed that each time you acquire an ability or improve an ability, the brain actually revises itself. And those revisions, that remodeling, that rewiring is the basis of the acquisition of that ability or skill. And this is a great asset that we carry with us throughout our life from the yeah. day we're, before we're born to the day we die. Yeah. And this is a huge, I mean, you say it now and people are so much more familiar with the idea that the brain it can and does change throughout life. And of course, the big question, does it change in the direction we'd like it to change or in a direction we don't want it to change. 
But, you know, 20, 30 years ago, I know from my experience when I talked to doctors and so on, working with people and especially with the children with special needs, and I'd say, you know, it's really about the brain and we have to communicate with the brain. I would get to those just blank stares. I mean, it wasn't like even they opposed me or anything. It just didn't register. So, so So I will tell you a few topics I'd like to cover today. Uh, first of all, did you have a chance to see the film again? I did. I enjoyed it very much. Yeah. So maybe you can say a few words if you want anything to say about it. Um, because, you know, people, the people that are listening, at least most of them have watched the film. And um, so the other topics that I would like to cover is, and I uh, I put it down, a, and it's not in order of importance, But I was listening, actually, taking a a quick uh, walk this morning to someone talking about the brain and the brain change. And he and people, he's not the only one, talk about rewiring the brain. And thinking about the rewiring the brain, the RE part of the wiring, first of all, you work with, I work with children. I don't know that I rewire the brain. I help it wire. (laughs) <laughs> but also, when I work with an adult, for example, that had a stroke or a musician that wants to improve their playing, I don't think I rewire. I mean, rewire means like you unplug what's there and you create new lines or something like that. So I have a few questions embedded in there. So sure. first of all, to a great extent, at least rewiring sounds to me a false False idea. It's wiring that reorganizes and changes what the brain can do. Right. Well, <laughs> you are, in a sense, modifying its wiring, but that's what happens naturally in every brain. What happens naturally in every brain is that the brain progressively specializes in its operations as a function of how it's engaged or used. And it, it, it naturally evolves when it, all things go well to carry us from in a, in, in a baby from a relatively primitive capacity to control its, your actions and to control your operations and thought and your interpretation of what's happening in the world uh, it, it, as, as a function of how it's engaged in the world and as a function of how you evolve, slowly evolve those, that control of those actions and those thoughts. So it is a rewiring in a sense that, that you are in a sense uh, uh, filling in the, the sort of detailed wiring plan of a brain, and you can do this in a in a in a literally zillion ways, it, because the brain actually creates a model of the world and the operational abilities of the person creates the person themselves through yeah. quadrillions of moments of change. So, and what that does, and that as you know, is it creates in within the skull of every human individual an absolutely unique machine. And everybody's brain basically is different, not, not the same in detail as any other brain that ever was. In a sense, there have been 110 or so billion of these machines created so far right, in human brains on planet Earth. And what a gift it is. Yeah. You, the brain actually can create your own unique sort of uh, body of special tools and abilities and facilities that define you, that are you. That, that, that basically represent the, your world and represent your capacity and your ability. Which is, of course, where the 
not just the hope, but the very concrete opportunity lies oh. where, because the, uh, in, in a certain way, the brain is like when trying to buy a, a investment fund, right? Past experience does not predict future performance. It could, but it doesn't necessarily. Right. That means what we do, what we start doing and how we go about doing it. And that I would like to talk in a minute for you to talk in a minute. It, it opens remarkable possibilities that otherwise would be considered not there. You know, I, I'd like it, 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 it to, uh, the, you know, basically coming into the world with a great factory in which they haven't decided exactly what they're going to make there. Right? <laughs> and, and actually through your <laughs> operations, you specialize that you build the, the machinery that, that's required, you could say, to, to create a tremendous uh, range of abilities and, 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 and to load it with an incredible amount of information. Scientists have estimated that we have the capacity to store within our brains as much information as is, is, can be found on the internet. Yeah. And we do, each one of us has this incredible ability to record all of this information and to and develop all of this ability by brain change, by our operations. What a gift. And what you know, gift. Mike, as you say that, all the information on the internet is huge amount of information. I, but what your brain and everybody's brain can do is come up with things as a result of experiences and all the information we, we have with things that are not on the internet. That means it, it molds it and it comes up with that new ideas and new, new possibilities. And that's uh, <laughs> what I find more exciting, most exciting, you know? Right. So I would like to, to so uh, um, have a, a couple of questions because a big part of our audience are, you know, uh, parents of children with special needs and people working with children right. with special needs, but we also work with adults. So I don't want to only specialize on children with special needs, but that kind of the rewiring depends on continued differentiation right. you know, in the brain. That means new connections in the context of whatever we are learning. Uh, my, so again, with, Children that have, are young and haven't learned yet to do certain things and are challenged by learning how to do it, it's new wiring. So it's wiring the brain. Right. When, when I have worked with people, for example, that, uh, adults that have had a stroke, and, and sometimes there is recovery of certain aspects of the function that they've lost within minutes. So in the film that you watch, Tessa, after the very first lesson, and I think it's in the film, she came back the next day and she said that she realized after the lesson that she got back sensation in her face and the right side of her body. Right. I didn't even work on her getting sensation. And, and so, in, in other words, very often there is this proportion between what I do with a person and the enormity or the transformational outcome. Right. And my thinking is that, oh, I forgot, I'll say something else in a minute, but that what, what I do, oh, let's put it, I take it from the other side. When somebody has a stroke, they lose more function than they lost brain connections because right. there's an interrupt, interruption in the neural networks, right? But if we give them a little bit of bypasses, 
a lot more comes online that wasn't directly worked on. Would you agree with that? Well, there can also be uh, factors in play, you could say, that are in a sense disguising or, or, or masking the real capacities of a brain. So we've seen children, for example, who are identified as profoundly autistic and, and have trained them over a period of maybe a month working on a computer. And we've seen them move in their performance abilities, four or five standard deviations in performance across the distribution. Phenomenal. A possible level of change. And, and, and you can't account for all of that by, by you could say, reconstructing all of that, all, all of that incredibly complicated, you know, and, and actually their brain has evolved, but what hasn't evolved is their ability to report what they knew or what they can do. Yeah. And, and when you just alert, when you wake up the machinery of the brain that's controlling their alertness or their arousal or their ability to stay on task by controlling their attention, then suddenly they can express it all. Suddenly they, they, they can go through a period, a relatively short period of time in which they tell you for the first time ever what they can really do. And so yeah. in a sense, there are, there are, there, the brain has strategies by which it in a sense can hide from us. What's really going on in there and what has really changed in there that is it, it could potentially advantage the kid. So you do see these miraculous changes that, that can occur in a relatively short period of time. And, so, and that, that, can, that can occur. That is a real yeah. effect that we've seen repeatedly. What not always. Not yeah, always. yeah, yeah I, I know. I mean, because, yeah, because it can vary so tremendously. Right. Right. Working with very young children, you know, like a few, few days old is a whole other conversation, but a few weeks old to a few months old, right. that really not only have not developed certain configurations of movement and organization, Right. But uh, they have, um, uh, they have uh, like with atetoid uh, cerebral palsy, they have already grooved in involuntary patterns of movement. So it looks like complete, but if you watch it for three minutes, you see that it repeats itself. I see that it repeats right. itself. And then we do, I do something with them or whatever, a little process. And all of a the sudden, there's a huge jump in what they can do, like intentionally, you know, they slow down and intentionally are able to pick right. a toy, which they couldn't do for 14 months or I know however long. Right. And I'm curious for accounting to this really hop. It's almost like it hops to a whole new thing. Now I know that the hopping phenomena exists with all development. You know, a child doesn't say mama until one day he says mama, right? Right. He said a whole other things. I mean, a lot is going on, but there is a hop, you know, between a child that didn't displace themselves in space, like crawling to the child that all of a sudden displaces themselves in space. It's a big jump. Do you have any thoughts about this hop quality of the brain? Well, I, I think that one of the things that you're doing is you're growing the, the child's attention to control to, to the to the to, to important contributors of the of the behavior and the behavior behavioral. Can, can you say that again? I'm not sure. Well, I, I think we're growing the, the you could say the the child's um, the machinery that's controlling their arousal or attentive attention attentiveness to the task in in the behavioral domain in which you're operating. This is this is this is now I want, want to say this is this is a, this is speculative. I'm not absolutely certain what's happening. And of course, in any individual child, 
in which you see transition like this or an adult that, that's, that, that's struggling. You, know, you see this rapid, these rapid changes. They're not absolutely, you know, there, there could be a variety of reasons that, that uh, underlying explanations for why this occurs. But I think it primarily relates to arousal and attention control. Attention yeah, control. That, that's, that's, a very, that's magnificent, very important. The way, so I, I tell the story very briefly. I did a workshop in New York. They brought a four-year-old girl the P, to PTs, to physical therapists, many right. years ago. They brought it to a, a girl that couldn't crawl. You know, she, she had cerebral palsy. I did a demo on her, and she started crawling. So right. that, again, it doesn't happen in every child every time, you know, this way. But that was one of those big hops. Obviously, she got therapy for quite a while, so her system had experience of certain she was moved in certain ways. And the therapist said, I do what you do. So how come she didn't start crawling with me? Right. And, and I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I also lift her arms, move her legs, you know. And it's true. When you move a child, there's sort of a, re- a given repertory that we will be able to do with that child at any given moment. And I said to her, I have, I have no idea. Let me think about it. Right. And, and what I came up with is I realized that it's not what I do, which I have to do something, just like the therapist. It's how I do it. Right. And the how I do it calls upon the attention of the child. Right. The essentials do that big time, right? They call the attention of the child. But my sense was that somehow by what, how I'm doing what I'm doing with the child, the child's brain, in terms of being a learning machine, gets way upgraded. Right. They're much more, so it's like my sense is that we can, through certain mechanism, upgrade the underlying quality with which the brain will learn whatever it's going to learn. We've done simple, we've done simple experiments in, in that where we've, we've used strategies that have been used in animal experiments that upgrade the level of attention control. And, and, and basically what the animal experiments were targeting were the, was the machinery that sought to control attentiveness. So basically, when you attend or focus your attention on what's something of interest, the brain basically releases a neurotransmitter, noradrenaline. And noradrenaline basically floods the brain. And, and basically, what it does is it turns up the amplifies your attention or, 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 or activity that relates to whatever you're involved in or engaged in in that, in that moment. And it's turned on by anything that occurs that's novel or unexpected. Okay, so if you basically uh, basically show a, thing, a, a child or an adult surprising things that are novel and unexpected, basically it keeps this brain machinery activated. And if you if you exercise the brain and and deliver this uh, this sort of stimulation, you know, exciting series or th- things are happening that's really drawing the attention of the child. Uh, what you do is you upregulate this. The, the delivery of this neurotransmitter and what it does is increase learning rate very 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 substantially if you if you if you apply such training for 10 minutes your learning is uh, is amplified for about an hour if you apply such training for 10 minutes for about 10 days you permanently upregulate it's as if you've given the kid Adderall in the first instance as if you've actually corrected the attentive machinery after 10 hours. And now we've actually shown that children that are intentively impaired ADHD children that go through this progression basically recover from it. 
And actually what happens is that, that now they're attentive and now they're learning faster and better. They, they don't have all of this interference from all of the noise and they're able to focus in their attention. And, and it turns out you wait for three or four or five or six months. If you had given them Adderall or given them uh, some other stimulant drug, by that time you'd have to give a lot more of it because the brain would have adjusted basically and stopped making the noradrenaline itself. But when you train the brain and actually correct it naturally, organically, what happens is, is that three months later, they're even more attentive because now they're using. Yeah, they're, they're, they're learning from right. the learning. Yeah. So basically, you break through these things that are limited their ability, have limited their ability. I mean, you have a child that can't move, that can't control themselves, that basically can't operate effectively. You are, you've, all of this machinery is downregulated. And what you're doing is waking it up again. You're, you're waking it up again, and you're exercising it. And, and yes, you would anticipate that what you do would result in an improvement of tension control, and you'd anticipate that it would result in, in an improvement of learning rate. Yeah, it's, actually, it's not at all surprising to me that you see this in that. Yeah, it's not only – it's interesting because the way you said about surprising and stimulating, uh, you know, stimulate, you know if, if, uh, experiences, a lot of time – the work that I do is actually slowing way down and getting the the capacity of the child to sense and feel intensified by doing that. Right. And we are now doing some work coaching the parents through Zoom because of the pandemic. And we, we're training the parents to operate through the essentials and to be more aware and slow themselves down. And on the Zoom, I, I do most of the initial consult, the child, you know, children, their body comes down. The child that's agitated, like a child on the autism spectrum, they start listening. And by the way, they start recognizing me as the source of what's happening, and they start paying attention. And so... Eventually, I will do also fasting and, you know, vary, but primarily initially is really slowing and somehow that gets them internally to amplify their own what they feel. So right. I don't have to provide it externally. They turn the volume in through more and more delicate, um, you know, sensations and perceptions that allows them to differentiate in a much more refined manner. Right. I'd like to go back and, and say a little bit about what the initial uh, questions that you raised in this issue and in this uh, conversation and that, and that is you, 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 you asked, you said, well, it's not rewiring really. It's, it's establishing wiring for the first time, basically. And, you, you know, you could say that if you just thought about humankind, human individuals, you could ask, well, how many of them do a really good job uh, refining, wiring their brain in a refined way, let's say by the time they reach their 20th birthday. And you could say, well, uh, maybe about half of people on, the, on planet Earth are doing a really good job. And, uh, but, but actually, everybody could have done better. And because everybody is subject to improvement, if we just understood, you know, with greater clarity, what your brain is asking you to do, in a sense, to make the most of its possibility or the most of its potential. And of course, we really the brain is a self-developing organ. And that self-development in a sense 
It's not just early childhood. It's all across the life. You have the capacity to continue to grow and to continue to develop and to continue to improve your ability all across the life. Of course, most of us don't do that. We have a period early in life in which we're very serious about developing our abilities. And of course, there are fundamental things that we want to happen so that we're operational in the world. But, but why wouldn't you think about life as a, a life of continuous growth and continuous expansion of ability? Because it can be. Nothing's yeah. stopping you. Nothing's stopping any child. It drives me crazy. <laughs> we know that we can change the operational characteristics of the brain of every child. It drives me crazy that when they go to school, why don't we give a kid a brain exam? That, that drives me nuts. I mean, why, don't we con- why are we concerned about how healthy the brain is? We assume, we assume that if the kid shows up at school and is not very obviously very unwell, that everything is fine in there. That's crazy. We should be evaluating every child and every child that needs neurological help should get it from us. We should help them assure that their developmental progression has been a good one and that they're set up to succeed and they're set up and to make progress in life. In the same way, when we look at children, like basically that get in trouble, let's say with the law, what do we do? The what worst. Do we? we do exactly the wrong thing. The worst, we do the worst. We, we, we basically punish them. But, but the fact that, that they've done something that indicates that they can't live with the rest of us means they have a neurological problem. We should understand that they need help. We don't need punishment. Punishment won't help anything. Punishment will just drive them farther into the hole. They, they need to go, maybe they need to go to a place where they can't live with us, but that place should be a treatment center. We should help them. And the fact that we don't, the fact that we don't find every child that comes to school that's struggling, and knowing that we have the capacity through our brain plasticity related approaches to, to make them better, to help them, to give them a chance. And we don't do it. When they ultimately do get into trouble, it's not their fault as much as it's our fault. Yeah. And you know. So this drives me, as I'm an old man, you know, this old man crazy. <laughs> the right to be, <laughs> be a grumpy old man, right? Is that what we're saying here? <laughs> anyway, so uh, you, uh, I, your passion, I think your passion. Well, no, no. Yeah. And, and uh, you see these children and you, and like you, you, you love them. I love them. Yes. You know, I, you know, every time I see a kid, I say there's a real possibility for something wonderful here. Yeah. And, and, and it's and, actually totally accurate. And I want, for, I, I, I totally agree with you. You, and we can hopefully have a little time to talk about that too uh, today, is you are already uh, working with schools and, and, you know, instilling programs that make a big difference. Right. Uh, you know, we are working with one school district in Canada. By the way, we are renewing it. We just talked to them this week. I'm so excited online. And I want to, if you stay on the call afterwards, I want to talk to you a few minutes sure. <laughs> about it. Sure. If you have the time. Okay. Yeah. But, but the thing is that, that uh, um, 
you know, these are still, everybody talks brain. And it's not, many schools now do a program about the brain, but they show the brain on a, on a, you know, on a screen and they show the parts and they talk about the amygdala. Right. But that's not the point. I mean, that's okay. That's perfectly fine. However, it's about bringing the mechanisms that upgrade the quality of the functioning of the brain and its ability to learn right. and do its job well. And that is uh, almost I- invisible to most people I guess, uh, that I know about. Right. It's just like, I don't know, the 18th Industrial uh, Revolution's uh, model of schooling still. So, yeah. so right. it's, it's, it's very true. I, I hope, you know, that at least that we, I and you and some other people contribute to, to a faster shift in that in the schools. But I also want to say, again, because there are a lot of parents, the way that traditional therapy is done also, in a sense, has a punitive element to it. Yeah. And, and that, in a minute, will lead me to the next topic I want to ask you about. But I know you have been very, very involved in research and implementation. But <clears throat> when a child cannot stand up, whatever the reason is, and he stood up by a stander or a, people hold him up or make them crawl, right. the, in other words, trying to make the child do what they can't, First of all, the brain, it's their brain's experience and they're learning, except they're learning a lot of not good things and on many, many levels, including their own sense of self. And they feel they're bad and wrong and upsetting people around them. But a lot of times they're also in pain. And and the ceiling is created to their progression that people assign to the condition. Well, and they mistake it and don't realize that the limitation, the way it shows up, is assigned to the intervention. Well, one of the things that's about that's it's right, you know, I again was struck by it in in the in the video, and but I've also been struck by it in visiting you and that and and I and that's the fact that in your rehabilitation center you have no machines. And where the hell are your machines, right? That's actually the standard way that you think about helping somebody that can't move is to put them in a machine and hold them up somehow and suspend their weights and, and have them say, move, damn it. You know, that basically is a strategy. And that movement commonly is in a stereotypic form. Yes. They say that if this person could just reach out and grab this, let's try a million times and maybe they can do it, right? Yeah. And of and course, basically what it, you, and I both, yeah. you and I both know that, that, that reaching out and moving it is not something that just involves an arm. Yes. And it can't, and you can't, you can, you can maybe get a distorted movement so that they can twist their body and move that, you know, people have attempted to, to, uh, to basically treat children, for example, with cerebral palsy by such strategies, but they're extremely limited because what they do is they treat movement in distortion and with limitation. They naturally, not necessarily ceiling. you know, basically you have to base, you have to reorganize the way the brain controls its movement more holistically, more completely. And you have to go through the natural progression, you, you could say, by which the brain builds the resources so that ultimately it can do the refined thing. And you have to train with variation. Exactly. You I have mean, to train with variation. You can't, and you have to train with the consideration of what the child can and cannot do. Yeah, because you can only, you know, Mike, logically, we can only differentiate from where we are. Yeah. We cannot have a hop in differentiation. 
We can but, have a hop in performance, but not right. in hop in differentiation. I submit that one of the main reasons why people sometimes can't believe that you do what you do is because they can't see the machines in your How can this be advanced? You know, how can this be? How can this actually work? You know, it, you know, it's never occurred to me that the lack of machines will be a, even a consideration. That's so interesting. It's really very interesting. So what I would like to, to move to talk about um, is the whole uh, 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 topic of uh, trauma. Right. I know you have looked at So if you can tell us a little bit about the research of, of trauma, then we can, I would like to hear from you what you if you have a, an observation of what uh, what ends up being traumatizing to the person, right? Because I can say, uh, I'm doing something and you got traumatized or I do the same thing and you don't get traumatized, right? right. right. From the brain's point of view, and there's some wonderful work like uh, Judith Herman wrote 30 years ago, a fantastic book called Trauma and Recovery, and she she didn't have all the brain current uh, you know knowledge and so on. So people have looked into it, but uh, so if you can talk about your research, and then I would love to know if you if you have a general concept of what the brain perceives or experiences for it to have the trauma, and what are the consequences. Well, it's a complicated uh, subject when we get to mechanism. And we talked about how, how, how trauma can impact a brain. And, and of course, trauma comes in many forms. And, 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 and sometimes it's highly persistent and sometimes it's powerful and limited in the, in the time span in which it occurs. It occurs in all kinds of, kinds of ways. And, and, uh, but uh, one of the things, of course, you and I know is that the, the, the experiential trauma that applies for a child is very common. You know, people don't know no, in general, in the United States, that by the time a young uh, woman graduates from high school, one in seven has been, has experienced sexual uh, a trauma, has been sexually abused. One in seven. Every classroom, there, there, there are one or two young women in the, that classroom that have had these experiences that have been neurologically damaging. But, but in that across humankind, at least a third of individuals suffer trauma on a level in which it's basically generated soft damage in their brain that's on a substantial level. One in, one in three. And uh, the, the, the sad part about all of this is that, is that it's correctable and we don't correct it. And basically that's largely these traumatic experiences slow developmental progression they basically degrade learning rate. They, they have a series of changes in, in hormonal structure and in, in hormonal impact and ultimately impact on the autonomic nervous system control. It actually compromises physical health. Most children, most mental illness is actually set up by negative factors that occur in life that have damaged the brain in childhood. If we actually found, discovered all of these children, that have traumatic histories or live with fear, or live with stress, high stress across a period, substantial period of their life and help them. Think of the impact it would have 
on the health and well-being of those individuals in an older life. And yet we, we do not do what we should. We don't, we have no systematic way to, of finding them. How the hell can the medical establishment not take it on as a goal to find every such child and help them? I do not understand this. How can, how can we not uh, basically take a look at every kid that enters our, 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 our public uh, system, our school, and I find them all and then try to help them? We just don't, we just don't do what we should do morally and on the basis of the, our scientific understanding, it seems we don't. So, so many are lost because of this, lost to mental illness, lost to addiction, lost ultimately to, to being oppositional in behavior because of all of their struggles and ultimately ending up in prison. We have 2 million individuals in America in prison. And what is substantially about the majority of them actually have a very tragic early life of extended trauma. And we never did anything about it. You know that if you go to school, your little boy and you go to school, and, uh, and uh, you're really bad at it. You're really bad at it because your brain not neurologically really set up to succeed. And you quite quickly identify yourself as not being good at it. And you struggle to learn to read. And you become oppositional in the first or second grade. There's about 60% chance that you'll commit a felony before your 30th birthday. Now why the hell... Don't we respond to that child who is pleading, begging, begging for help. And their problem is neurological. We have to consider how we can correct it by helping them move their brain to a better place. And the tragic part about it is that brain is plastic. It can be moved to a better place. And not our failure to do that, our failure to help them is in fact the tragedy because it basically holds us responsible. So, you know, this is, you know, we are so slow to operate, to act on our, on our knowledge and that, and no, so slow to apply these principles to help people to, to guide them onto a path for a better life. We have the capacity to radically change the broader health of our society. We have the, we have the capacity to substantially reduce what is now an underclass in our society and bring them into the mainstream and give them a real chance to compete with the rest of us for the good things and, and the material things in life and, and, and spiritual things in life. And we just blow it. So anyway, I'm dedicated in my, in my own life now to try, to try to make a difference in this domain. I'm trying very, very hard to sort out relatively easy and relatively simple strategies to find these children and to help them. And uh, I, in, in your own way, Annette, you're making, you're making great, you've made great inroads in, yeah. in, in, in helping this, these child populations. And I've learned a lot from you about doing that. Wow. This is incredible to hear from you. Be careful. I'm going to start crying. <laughs> I won't be able to interview. I get moved. I can't. <laughs> so um, anyway, thank you so much for saying that. Uh, you know, the my initial core uh, principle that I didn't put as an essential is from fixing to connecting. 
Right. When you were talking and describing the little boy in first or second grade and he has a hard time, there are quite a few teachers that will not do it this way. But if I generalize, again, you know, the, the educators and the parents will tend to say that he's behaving badly or bad behavior. Right. I tried to, I said, I, there is no behavior. There's no behavior. Let's just cut out behavior. Let's look at action. And let's go from the idea that a, a human being always does the best they can at any given moment, no matter how awful it is. Yeah, right. Well, you, a, a, a boy that's trying to defend himself and basically that sees him, that little boy that sees himself as, as uh, uh, being very bad at school and not effective at school and maybe very difficult for them because of their, you could say, soft brain damage difficult for them to, 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 to make friends and difficult for them to operate in the environment of the school and they maybe become a subject of ridicule or bullying. That they become oppositional is no surprise and everything about what their brain is doing basically in the, fa- in the face of maybe a traumatic or very high stress early life, their brain is operating completely appropriately. Exactly. That's what I'm, he- I'm heading towards. So the opposition is a way to stay it, it, it got a little psychological to stay with some sense of definition of self, right. Right. right? Something very crude. Opposition is a very undifferentiated way dealing, you know, with right. others, but it's the best that they can do. So okay. I always say if we could, he would, if she could, she would. So stop asking people to do what they can't do. Right. See what they actually are doing. That's the beginning of connecting to another person. And then when you see what they do, you can use uh, your amazing, you know, online programs, building in variations, building in an opportunity for the brain to have what it needs to be able to do what it needs to do. See, so, Anna, one of the most important things you do is you convince a child, or an, a, 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 we'll talk about children now, you, you convince the child through their progressive ability to do something, a little, some little thing that they couldn't do before. You convince them that they can they can change things. You convince them that they can move in a positive or or or, or growing direction. And this is a, something else that we need to do for every child. We need to explain to them that whatever their state, whatever their circumstances, there, there there's an upside, and there basically that upside is under their control. Their brain is plastic. So one of the most important things that we we do we do this very directly. We teach a child not just about the parts of the brain and the way the brain. We teach we explain to them that their brain is plastic and that there's a commander in the ship and the commander is them. Yeah, they're in charge and they can change. They can grow every day. They can be very different in a year and it can be all good. We, every okay. child should see that their situation is not hopeless. No child should give up on themselves. Every child should see that, that, in fact, there can be a continuous progression in their life that can make their life a better one. You know, and Mike, my, my experience by doing the work, and also in myself, because I, I'm still doing the movement work, and I... The moment of shift, the moment when something changed and it's a little easier or it's something I didn't even think of doing and I'm doing spontaneously, 
it's it, there's a surge of delight. There's a surge of sense of well-being that is spontaneous, which I really believe is one of the ways that the system is built to keep us on track in, in the direction uh, in positive progression. So, and of course, there's like also you say, oh, you're doing. I mean, there is like the I can feeling. Right. Yes, you know the firmness. Yes, I can. You know, I can. And and then it can also be told to the child because children decide. I've had a number of children when, you know, they were taught to do math and the way, you know, they, it was taught they couldn't figure it out. And I was started working with them and they said, oh, I'm stupid. I said, no, you're not. I said, your teacher, I'm so sorry, but I said, your teacher is stupid. Because if you think you're stupid, that means the people around you are stupid. I, I, I have this parent sitting in the room. I said, you can leave now. You don't have to continue working with me. But this is what I tell the child to differentiate. Yeah. It's not their job to figure out how to learn. It's our job. So one thing we do, Annette, is we, we explain to the child that their brain is plastic, obviously, in terms that a child can understand. And then we take the child uh, 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 to, on their computer to a brain job. And we say, okay, let's, let's change your brain. Let's see if you can change it, right? So you can demonstrate quite easily in a child over a period of a day or two or three. For example, that if they, if they practice and develop their skills and abilities, they can do things that they couldn't do a day or two or three before. They can hear things they couldn't hear before. They can understand things they couldn't understand. They can remember more. You know, you can demonstrate within a few days that your brain is a better brain than it was several days ago. Yeah, I mean, they actually experience it. I mean, that's the most convincing yeah. thing and, and once they experience it, they understand. It, it, you know, we found that the education of children about their, possibil- their possibilities of self-development and growth is really important. Because when the, when the kid sees that they can go somewhere, you know, and see that their situation, in a sense, is not, they're not, they are a work in progress. And they can, and they're, it's, they're not done just because they got off to a bad start in school. Yeah. They have an upside. And you, you, we'd see all kinds of wonderful things happen that wouldn't happen without that understanding. Yeah. You know, I think I'm, I'm learning here, Mike, because anyway, I won't go into my side right now. Um, yeah, Anad, I think we should open it up for some questions. questions. This, right. this conversation could go on for days, and it will. <laughs> um, and, yeah. I mean, one question that I think you should save till the end, because it could, like, open up a whole can of, like, many more podcasts, is where do Mertzenich and Anat disagree? <laughs> no, not so right I, now. No, but maybe just, maybe just a couple of little teasers at the very end of the podcast. Um, what, following on from what you've just been saying, Mike, can uh, you describe some of the soft brain damage that does occur with trauma? That's one of our, from and, one of our trainees, Tracy Emery. Yeah, and also what do you mean by soft brain damage? Well, one of the things that happens is that the brain basically is, is just delayed in its progressive development because the change processes, the plasticity itself is impacted, and the machinery that's controlling plasticity in a sense is, is, is distorted in its, its operation. So there's a, a kind of disabling of the change processes of the brain. And also the brain basically has to evolve in, in, in developing its it, it, it progressively more strongly correlated activity in all of the domains, the sources of information that they're feeding the higher levels of process of the brain. And that's actually, the brain actually creates the self by basically delivering relatively highly coordinated activity 
to the highest levels of the brain. And in those levels, when you're in your operations, in, uh, in all of your actions and all of your thoughts and all of your feelings, the brain basically is associating those thoughts and actions and feelings with its source. And the source is you. And it does this billions of times in an early life. And the consequence of that is it creates a, a, a construct, a for, a, you could say its greatest single product, and that's the genesis of self. And it occurs in the frontal cortex of the brain. And you look at a brain that basically suffers from continuous stress, traumatized, basically a fear. Commonly, what you commonly see is, is that there's a very weak development of this executive, of executive control in the brain. So you have a very unreliable captain of the ship. You have a ship that operates very impulsively. This part of the brain machinery is still very noisy. It's evolved only to primitive sense extent. It's partly because it's been impaired in this progressive development and in, the, in its capacity to change, but it's partly because this machinery has gotten limited exercise in doing the kind of sophisticated and complex and nuanced things that it would need to, to, to have gone through, you could say, experientially, to have a, to have a, a richly endowed capacity to control com complex operations and, uh, uh, on, on this executive level in the brain. So the brain also, the brain basically exaggerates when you're traumatized, the machinery basically that is defending the, 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 the individual. It basically creates a, you exercise your reactivity to things that relate to the trauma so much that basically that hyper-reactivity basically is dominant. So basically the amygdala is in control these three processes in the brain that are, that are contributing to your defensive reactions are in control because you become very, very good at defense. And basically that largely disables you. This is the child that goes into the meltdown. This is the child that just can't control their operations or actions. This is the child that is by nature not just inattentive, but hyperactive. And, and all of those things have occurred because the, basically the, 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 the machinery at the top of the brain is unstable. It can't control these emotional overload situations. And because you've so heavily exercised the emotional side of the brain, to help such a child, you need to do two things. You need to rebuild the self you know, in its complex operations. And you need to basically help the self, help that executive reestablish control over the emotional uh, instability or an emotional uh, wildness of a brain that's basically gone through a traumatic uh, history in life. So it's, you know, I'm writing a book about this, neurologically, that explains this neurologically. People have written about it intelligently in, uh, in other uh, ways in the literature. If, if you communicate with me, I can uh, suggest things that you could read that might help you get through this in, in, in understanding and and, uh, and you, you can know, find yeah Mike that's fantastic what we'll do is we'll get the information from you and we'll provide it to everyone right, right. So it Great. Will make a one-time demand right. on you not a thousand times demand on you you got it I'll do it yeah uh, Neil any other question we have a little time left yeah I'm putting some of them in the chat um, 
And there's two that sort of go together, one from Facebook and one from uh, here. How about you You take charge and, and read Okay. Can you comment on uh, periventricular leukomalacia damage in the brain and changing outcomes for the baby? And then on Facebook, Stiegler, Darlene Stiegler has said, can this method help a child with cerebral palsy? Well, uh, uh, it's, it's a little bit difficult to talk about individual uh, cases and conditions because uh, I just don't have enough information at hand. I can talk very generally about, for example, a child with uh, cerebral palsy. And, uh, and, uh, and say that, you know, there's obviously a problem with differentiation of movement. Uh, the, the, the brain is struggling and, and is, is in control movement and differentiation. And some of the strategies that are used to try to help the child or, or reduce the pain or, are, are actually going to limit the capacity of the child to develop, to, to generate movement in, in, in its natural forms. Uh, if I had a child with cerebral palsy or a grandchild with cerebral palsy, I'd, I'd, I'd work from a very young age. I'd work from infancy to try to help the brain re-elaborate its movement control. It basically is heavily exercised movement with some limitation, commonly some neurological uh, uh, damage is, in, is inferred. But just so you know, we've simulated cerebral palsy in an animal just by constraining its movements. So for example, I can constrain the movements of the hind limb of a rat in young life for a couple of weeks. And basically it teaches itself to move all of the, uh, around all of the joints of the limb in unison. And now I remove the constraint. And now it has a competitive winner in its development of its neurology. And that competitive winner is the simultaneous movement of the whole limb around the joint of the hip. And that grows and grows and grows and grows. And pretty soon the legs of the rat, it's a sad thing. Don't want to continue to do this experiment. Are like long sticks that raise the rear end of the rat up on the, up the ground. And when I look in the brain, it's all hip movement. Everything's moving around the hip. And almost no movement in the brain controls any movement below the hip. It's, it's a distortion of natural plasticity that occurs because of movement restraint that occurs. The, the task in recovery in the rat is to redifferentiate the movement from the day you take off the restraint. And you can substantially restore that movement if you, if you work again systematically and rebuild it from, you could say, first principles. What do I have to do to get the to enable all of this differentiated movement and, and, and so forth. So I think that the strategies that we that have been used in rehabilitation for the most part in physical therapy have been primitive in this respect and, and not really up to generating the variations of movement control that are necessary to drive big differences in the, these uh, children. But uh, this is too complex a subject to talk about in, in, in great yeah. detail. And then one of the complications is, as Annette knows all, all too well, that no two of these children are identical, especially when they're little, very little. Every one of them has different, a different pattern. It's just different enough so that the starting point is in a different place. So it's difficult to talk about exactly what you would do in any given child and where you need to start and how you need to try to approach it. Yeah. And my... I'm sorry. Yeah. Sorry. I'm not more clear-headed about this. With yeah, this. well, Mike, you know, the, I, I, I'm, I'm going to jump in here actually a bit. 
and say that uh, the, the another person asked, would uh, our work, will, you know, the Anadbanian Method Neuro Movement help CP, you know, children with CP? The, the, and I, I'd let you answer that, but that's the process we do, right, of differentiation, the essentials. All that is driving the opportunity for the brain to differentiate around in areas where the injury stops it from differentiating. Right. Right. Would you agree with that? No, so, if I had a, a child or a grandchild with cerebral palsy, I'd send them to you and that. Okay. I'm glad I, you, I, don't, you don't need to, but yeah, it's, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, the, uh, Mike, if you, is okay for you to stay for a few minutes on? Uh, so, first of all, I want to thank you so much. We actually much. had a lot more questions. So if Mike and you could stay on for a bit longer, it would be wonderful to answer a few more questions. Are you? More. I'm good. Okay. So, uh, would you say up to another half hour? Would you be okay? Sure. Okay. Fantastic. So, thank you so much. And then I'll, I'll uh, then I'll stand talk to you for a few minutes. Uh, a few things that have nothing to do with these blogs. So. Uh, uh, where are the questions? They're in the chat. They're in the chat. Yeah, okay. there's one from. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll handle it. I just want to uh, say there's one from Vicky, and she asked a question yesterday, and she's actually a mother that we've been working with in the uh, online where is coaching. Vicky? I don't uh, see her. Can you ask that question? Eleven fifty-eight. Yes, uh, Victoria Auden to everyone. If a brain has been damaged in a baby, but the baby is moving well, does this mean that the brain damage will be more cognitive? Or is good movement a sign of good cognitive function too? Well, that's a really good question. But good movement is a sign that the frontal cortex, which is going to, going to control the action of the brain, is, is substantially intact. And, 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 that, and that machinery is also controlling action and thought. It's going to control action and thought. And, I, and, and you could say op, act, op, actual operations in general. So it's a very good sign. That, that it, it's a movement. But, and also remember that brain, when damage occurs in a very young brain, there's just a remarkable capacity to, to, to make up for it in a sense. The brain basically has a remarkable capacity to, to, uh, to make the uh, connectional adjustments, you could say, that, that, so that it can be very difficult to de detect the losses at a later age. And, and it, as, as the brain is exercised and, and basically assigns uh, its actions, you could say, and lim limits them and heavily, in, 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 heavily engage processes in the brain as it's changing itself, it becomes progressively more difficult for it to make large-scale corrections or changes. So it's, uh, you know, I'd be very hopeful that a brain that basically is still has a reasonable level of movement control, even though there is, it suffered significant physical damage, that it can be, there can be a, a large-scale recovery. And maybe it might, might be very difficult later in life to distinguish that child from any other. Uh, I, I would like to say here, uh, regarding that, this uh, um, two things. I totally agree when we have this experience working with children that are very young that come to us, and um, but it's very important that one of the mistakes that's done when they're very, very little, you know, there's very little people know to do because very young children, pretty much all they have is reflex movement and random movement. Right. So, so 
and and that's very important not to try to make the child like if the arm has brachial plexus injury right and it's uh, it's not moving and it's uh, it's not to try and make the arm like I know they do. They stretch, they, you know, they do because babies don't stretch arms and don't reach bottles. And, you know, when they're very little, it's really important to duplicate the, what you say, your way of saying their endemization of movement. Right. And that's what we do. So, and it's very often hard for people to detach themselves emotionally from the goal of wanting to see you know, that the arm moves a certain way or so on and so forth. Right. And by and we have an, on YouTube, in six minutes, an eight-week-old uh, infant that had a very severe brachial plexus injury, but not complete severing of the, ner- of the nerve. And within six minutes of me doing with her movements around the chest and everywhere else and randomizing it in directions, it didn't go because of the lack of movement of the arm, you know, that wasn't moving in space. She started moving the arm and, you know, a few months later, by the time she's a year old, you know, they came periodically for some more work. You can't tell the difference at all. And there wasn't a difference. It's recovered, you know. So, so that's an element that's so important when starting to work with a young child that obviously has had some kind of damage, neurological damage, to not try and fix them and make them do certain things, but recreate how they would have been had they been healthy, which is not doing specific movements for quite a while. Of course, in real life, there are other complications that, that not uncommonly arise in such a child. The brain might be unstable and the child might be subject to progression of, 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 to epilepsy yeah. or yeah, to other medical issues. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, that's not, that's not a, an uncommon uh, thing that occurs. The more strongly the brain is engaged and, and the more completely it's, it's, you could say, it's in action then the, the, the less likely it is that that, those inst- that kind of instability will arise in the brain. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's, it's really important that the child be engaged in things beyond movement as, soon, as early as possible and as richly as possible. Now, it's not to say that there's any absolute protection against something like an inherent instability that can need some further treatment or, or some other medical consideration. Yeah. Okay. I just want to make an announcement. We have a a lot of our trainees from our current professional practitioner training program, and those who are on the West Coast stream now need to leave us to go back to the training. So thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Mike, for speaking to them. But everybody else, um, either from the East Coast stream or the, the general public who've joined us, please stay online and we will answer more questions. And are you able to stay or you do have to leave too. I will make myself available to stay. Okay. So uh, do you want to read the next question since you've been scanning them? So, yeah, um, somebody had asked uh, about, we're talking a lot about the brain, but what about spinal cord damage? It's Cynthia. And she says her question on spine damage relates to becoming paralyzed and having to learn to walk and sense and have strength again as an adult at age 60. The, well, where is Cynthia? Is she on the call? Yes, she is. I'm going to see if I can find her and she could ask the question. Yeah, because maybe she can bring, you know, put her hand up, you know, the, 
Uh, you go to participant and there's, you... No, there she is. I found her. Found so, her? Cynthia, I've unmuted you. Hi, thank you. Uh, Cynthia, I just yes. want to, are, have you trained yourself to walk again? Yes, I worked with a physical therapist who, um, after going through some of what you talked about with physical therapists putting me in all kinds of contraptions, I found somebody who got me on a nap mat and started me as a baby crawling. And so that has been successful up into a point and I am standing now and walking and I have discovered your work about three months ago and it's making a big difference. And so my question had to do with, um, in, in a way or not, you just referred to it with the, 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 the uh, example of somebody who tore nerves. I mean, I had severe sprain, uh, spinal cord damage, uh, T8 through T12. And what I'm hearing, though, is that there's still all kinds of opportunity here for return to full functioning. And so I'm just wanting to put that question out there and uh, see what your responses are. Well, let's start. Uh, I, I would say a very short response, given the fact that you're improving. It's a hugely good prognosis for the opportunity to progress more. And that Mike will do, that's how I would see it. I don't know for sure, but I, that would be my my thinking. And Mike, what would you tell Cynthia? Well, there can be, there can be sort of remarkable recovery in the light of what looks is can be very substantial spinal injury there so there can be a a real serious decimation in the in the path in the tracks that are feeding information you could say forward and backward in the spinal cord relates to movement control and with relatively limited resources you can recover basic function and to say that you you recover you can anticipate recovering to normalcy well you're probably not going to win a marathon and you're probably not going to be quite as good a dancer as you were before. I will say that. But but just to be functional, just to be effectively functional and operational is what you what you seek. And to be as strong as you can be, there can be you can be back to a living a relatively normal life. It sounds like, and and you're lucky that you went through a progression in which someone understood that you had to rebuild your neurological resources from the ground up again. That was that was good fortune for you to go through that progression, and uh, keep it up, keep it up, and remember that almost no matter what you do, however, however your whatever your functional capacities are today, in a month they can be significantly better. Mm-hmm. You could measure them, and I tell you, if you keep working hard every day, they will they will be better in a month. Follow the same path, and and, and you'll see that. Okay. And then in a year. And then in two years, you have lots of years in front of you in life. I do. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. And, and you know, when I was uh, writing my first book uh, that got me connected with, with Mike, with Dr. Merzenich, uh, it, I, through the thinking, you know, and all that stuff, I realized it dawned on me that our brains, and basically Mike said it at the very beginning of this conversation today, is our brains need to continue growing. Mm-hmm. The, right. uh, the people who don't find paths for this, and not just accumulation of facts, you know, but organic growing, that means, uh, uh, that's Mike's language, evolving the machinery, 
right? The brain machinery that then impacts every other system in the body uh, is drives us to much better health. Right. So I'd, like to, I'd like to say something about that, Annette, because it's something that, that there's a growing appreciation of in, 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 in neurological science. And I'd like to just say two, two things about it. The first thing is, is that when we, we've done experiments in which we exercise the brain, and then we've asked ourselves, well, what's changing in the brain when we exercise it? So the first thing everyone talks about brain wiring, right? That's great. The brain can rewire itself as you improve its function. And, and, and I'd say that's easy to document. That's been documented thousands of times. But we made a long list of things that relates to the physical health of the brain as an organ. List of about 30 things. It relate to its chemistry, that relates to its, its, its functionality, that relates to its, uh, that relates to its, uh, 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 how, how it's being supported by the vasculature in, in, in nutritionally, a whole series of things like that. So first of all, we ask, well, if we look at an animal that's about to die, how many of these things are, are, in, are, are in good shape or bad shape? And it turns out everything is in bad shape. Everything you look at is in bad shape. So you could say it's just like an unexercised physical body. What's, what's not healthy in an unexercised physical body? Just about everything is not up to, up, up to speed. Same in the brain. And then you can say, well, how many of these things are reversible? How many things can I change by exercising the brain? And the answer is all of them. Everything is reversible. Okay, now just so you know, that reversal is not limited to the brain itself. So one of the things we as we begin, first thing we noticed was that when we trained an animal near the end of life and we stopped training after a month, everything in the brain was better, stronger, getting more nutrients, better able to defend itself, all kinds of things. We're, we're better recovered, restored to a youthful level. We thought the animals weren't about to die. They were feisty again. They seemed to be cognitively competent again. So we asked, well, how long will this animal live if we do nothing more? And the answer was their life was extended by about 40%. They live very dramatically longer lives by ex actually ex exercising their brain for a month, about an hour a day. So then we thought, well, could this apply to humans? Can brain exercise relate to physical health? Well, first of all, we know that brain health relates very directly to physical health. If you have a life that's traumatic in, this, in childhood, in adulthood, you don't live as long. A whole series of natural diseases occur in you with higher probability. You're much more likely to develop a diabetes, and, and multiple sclerosis, zillion things, much more likely to occur in your life than they would have occurred if, if your early life had been a healthy one, a brain-healthy one. So in fact, if you have a tr very traumatic early life, life expectancy is more than 20 years shorter than if you have a normal, healthy young life. So it turns out that, that more recently, we've been training older people, people in, from middle age onward, and we have indices of health. How well can their brain defend themselves? Or how well can their body defend itself in their immune response? You can actually improve the immune response 
the likelihood that you would be really sick from something like a COVID infection by training your damn brain. You can actually improve the brain way the body is regulating its homeostatic control to control your heart rate and control your breathing and other things to keep you in the best shape. Every organ basically getting the, the sort of nuanced changes as a function of what, what is called for in your body by exercising your brain. So when you think about how you're improving your brain health by how you're engaging it, it's not just brain health, it's brain and body health. And in fact, the brain is not, should not be thought of as anything separate or organ separate from the body. We commonly think of neurological problems and physical problems. That's nonsense. Nobody told the brain or the body about that. It's all unified. It's all unified. Healthy body impacts the health of the brain. Healthy brain impacts the health of the body. You want both of those to be healthy, of and, course. And you know, my, Mike has been involved in developing all the programs all the way from children, you know, fast forward that has millions and millions of children benefited. And of course, it's not just the reading and writing, the children on on the autism spectrum or other things, just because of what you said, I thought about it, get better in many other ways that initially it, the program wasn't geared, geared toward because it improves the brain. It improves the brain, brain. <laughs> you know, so the, and the brain is the big uh, CEO, right? So it improves everything and uh, programs for, for just like you mentioned, and maybe we will also, because we put it as a podcast, we put links next week, we can put links to different things that people can, you know, will we'll get from you, Mike. And, um, and, the, 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 and now the work with the schools where they get these fantastic outcomes with children that really go through profound healing. And a mother asked between the movement uh, that the child is doing well with movement, but the concern about cognition, again, there's, you know, there can be unusual combinations of how a child performs, but learning to move is cognition. I mean, the, the, the idea, I mean, the, the realization that I can reach my hand and, and, and hold the an item and I can build, put blocks one on top of the other and that if I touch it, I can knock it over. These are all cognitive learnings. I mean, it's, it's the more I look into it and I see it working with very, very young infants where they, their eyes move, they realize, oh, when, they do, when this happens, then this happens and they just make connections. So I don't see how one can separate the cognition from movement and movement from cognition. Movement by itself does not create an Einstein, you know, I mean, not, great athletes are not necessarily good mathematicians, but probably a lot of it is because nobody ever used their movement capabilities to drive more co cognitive development. That's my thinking. So, so yeah. So I, I, I wanted to mention that you have the, your, you and your, you know, people that you work with have developed magnificent programs and, and, you know, and I don't know how many of them are available publicly, but at least those that there are, people should know about. Well, actually, one of the things that we're doing right now is uh, we're focused on developing, uh, you could call them brain advancing or brain training strategies for uh, 
children that are um, in that are in uh, in the uh, sort of category of children of special needs, and uh, we're really interested in children that have had relatively severe uh, traumatic history, and we're interested in children that are have genetic misfortune to be to be set up for 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 struggles in life. We've trained thousands of these children, primarily in studies conducted in Australia. And we found that most of them can be substantially improved in their ability, and many of them can be rescued. Uh, that is to say, the brain can be normalized so that it operate, can operate at relatively high function, even though when they enter these uh, programs, they are, they are really struggling. So, for example, one of the classes of children, we've trained hundreds of children who have been in Australia in the foster care system in more than five homes in the previous year. And when you're in more than five homes in the previous year, obviously you're really struggling and socially and emotionally in control. And um, we can pretty reliably rescue such a child. And it really doesn't matter as a rule what they're called, how the clinic, clinician has labeled them. It doesn't matter very much. And what the rescue involves is a combination of brain education, emotional training, and cognitive training. And those in combination basically can get can then result in most of these children being advancing to the state in which they're stable in a home, back to school and stable and progressing in school. And by all objective assessment, much safer, much less likely to progress to mental illness or progress to addiction or progress to other problems that would other otherwise be likely to apply to their lives. So we're focused on these children now and uh, in, who are really struggling. And we're, we're still in, a, in America in a research phase because we don't, do not want to promise that we can do anything to the families involved in these children before we've confirmed that, we, that, that they can occur in a, on a deeper level still. But pretty soon we'll make these widely available to parents and widely, widely available in schools uh, because we think that most of the children that are really struggling in life can be rescued at a young age. I might say that we're also limited in what we're doing now because we're approaching children from about the age of 10. And uh, the reason for that is, is that in a sense, we can talk to them on a higher level. And because this, this is a period of time when they really enter a risk window from the point of view of their social development and, 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 and uh, real struggles in life and school and, and, and struggles mentally. We're trying to prevent mental illness. We're trying to help the kids stay safe against the the uh, possible forward progression to addiction. We're trying to bring the kid back away from oppositional behavior so that they're not going to get in trouble with the law. We're trying to do a whole series of things like this that can keep the child safe from what could be a disastrous personal outcome. And, uh, and um, I think that we can transform human societies if we're effective in this. So I'm focused on that in trying to get this these forms of help out in the world because every child that you can give to set on a better path is a victory for the rest of us and yeah. certainly for that child. Absolutely. Do you have in you a, to answer one more question? Are you up for one more question? Sure. Yeah, I think we have the time. What type of brain testing 
You mentioned earlier brain testing. Were you referring to that should be done to all children upon entering school? Right. To help oh. educators give children the opportunities they need. Do you have brain training exercise? Okay, that's it. Okay. We, we have we have an, we have created an assessment battery, which is all on delivered by computer, and uh, and uh, it takes about a total of about um, eighty minutes. It's it's basically completed over a three day three you know parts of three class periods in in, in program that we that we provide, and uh, it gives us a pretty good picture of the neurological status of the child, a relatively complete picture of the neurological status of the child. It primarily focuses on their operations in movement control and vision and in, and in, uh, and in listening and language. Uh, but but we, we can, from it, we can generalize enough to other operations in the brain to have a pretty good understanding of what is strong or not strong in their neurology and how healthy their brain is. So one of the things that's different about this is that we're, we, of course, are motivated to understand how they can are likely to progress or be limited in, in their academic side of their life. But we're also very much interested in brain health. We're trying to use these assessments to take a look into the physical brain in a very inexpensive way, delivering for, in a sense, a few dollars, the capacity to assess the health of the brain so that no one could, could, should be denied this. Basically, it's free to know what the status of the health of the brain is. And then we can use this as an index that can document improvement in the performance characteristics of the brain and in its health, a reassessment at a later time. What we're trying to do now is we're trying to train children in middle school, largely, and then we're trying to monitor what's happening in their brain health and managing it from the time they enter middle school to the time they, they graduate from high school. We're trying to basically drive them to a healthier position and then keep them there until they go out in the world on their own. I think we, that we could do this on a large scale in the world, and I think we could do it very inexpensively. And I think we could, that could result in the rescue of many, many children. So if anyone would like to you know, get access to these, to these programs, or in any, especially if you have any research purpose or you want to apply it in any way that would be useful, in a school you know about or in a child population you know about and you can, you know, we would provide it to people. We're not, but we, with the precautions that this, this is, for us is still a work in progress. That's amazing. We certainly would like to do it in the school where we're working. Um, one last uh, quick question. Uh, I've read about strategies to help my brain-damaged son, but he's also blind with no functional vision. As right. vision plays such an important role in learning, how best can I uh, stimulate learning? My son is very clever, but it's me that needs to be better. Right. This is, this is a sad thing about the tools that we've created is that we haven't created them. They're all visually demanding. And so we have not created training tools that can be applied to help a, a, uh, a blind child. But it sounds like you're, you're doing, you know, good and positive things. And, and the child and his lively intelligence is, uh, is, uh, is, informing, is basically confirming that you're doing good things to keep driving them in a positive direction. I mean, of course, when, we, when we're deaf or when we're blind, 
you know, we, that, that, that doesn't mean we're, we still have our neurological capacities not impacting our intelligence, not impacting our, and we have, we can grow the powers with the resources that we have and do dramatically powerful things with them still. And we have to just adjust our schedules and strategies for exercising and elaborating the performance characteristics of our brain uh, using the assets that we have available. Unfortunately, in the great world of literature or information gathered from, from, from uh, we can get on a lot of information in the brain from through the hearing sense and through the tactile sense and in other ways. And uh, so that, that, that can be a more important, differentially more important part of engaging the child and making them something special. That's, that's wonderful. That's beautiful. And I, I think the person who wrote it wanted to stay private in terms of uh, her name. But, but uh, in, my, in my world, and I also experience working with children and adults, actually, blind, uh, that the ba basic again, I'm uh, from my world. Um, the 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 nine essentials in terms of uh, the providing the brain the conditions that facilitate differentiation and perception of the you know differences and so on are very very useful and associating a. a, a instead, we so much associate everything to the vi visual sense to associate touch with sound. So for example, anyway, I won't go into an example now, but uh, and if you want to hear from us more about it, uh, feel free to contact us too. Mike, I think we're reaching uh, the end of a, a wonderful hour and a half. And uh, this, what you told us is going to be useful for many, many people for a very long time. So thank you so very much. So it's always nice to talk with you, Anad, and it's nice to meet all of you out there in this uh, very strange way. And uh, and just just so you know that I I am uh, I am uh, my job is to help people. That's my job. It's official. And uh, so anybody that has a special question or a special uh, need, write to me. Yeah, we'll get I, uh, I might not be really real responsive, but I uh, I'll try to <laughs> try to help. Yeah, you ask for it and uh, and or or refer you to somebody that maybe can help. Yeah, and we'll we'll put the we'll put it where they can email you and so on right. on our website. And if I don't know if you want this also on your website or whatever, but certainly we'll do it on our website. So and be patient because I'm a very busy guy. <laughs> That's that's why I'm trying to centralize the information as much as possible because we know that. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to say goodbye to everyone except Neil and Mike. Thank you so much for being on the call. So if you can just leave. And uh, well, before you leave, just remind you that there's actually another fascinating conversation going to take place this evening at six o'clock, same place. So rejoin us with, with Dr. Martha Herbert. Who is a, also a, a, a friends with a Dr. Michael Mersenik? They know each other, and absolutely, She's yeah. A, Jack, that would be a good good conversation. I kind of.
like to listen in on that myself. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll you can come in. Come and join us, yes. Yeah, oh, I'd love it. And we can have, you know, you and he, she can be back and forth. She's a pistol. This can and be a regular thing or not. You just have com group conversations yeah. between you, all your amazing friends and people yeah. can just yeah. eavesdrop. She's a smart and feisty person, so, you know, that'll be fun. Yeah, she, and she's just a, she's doing this amazing research called Documenting Hope. Yeah. Yeah. And she's gotten the NIH or whoever to give them criteria that they they didn't know what to do with in the beginning for reason, for valid scientific <laughs> research. So, so if you would like, you're more than invited, and I'm sure she'll be thrilled to see you. She she asked me that. Anybody else is going to be with? I said no, it's just you and me. Now I'm going to text her and say, "And Mike, if you have the time, six o'clock this evening." Yeah, I'll, okay. I'll try. Yeah, Mark is going to win a windmill tilter all of her life, and uh, she's 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 a good she's a good great scientist. Can I now say goodbye to everybody? Yes, Mike you, and you. Yes, you can. <laughs> Thank you. Bye, you guys. Bye, guys. Thank you so much, and and. Uh, We'll see you this evening, hopefully, for those of you that it's not the middle of the night. Thank you for joining us on Neuro Movement Revolution with Anab Benyel. You will find all of our podcasts and additional resources on our website at www.anatbenielmethod.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. We look forward to seeing you online for our next Neuro Movement Revolution.